Man, it is good to see you all here this morning. If you're visiting with us and I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Jason Williams. I'm among the many Jasons here at the church. And uh, we're honored to have you as a guest with us. And I would love to meet you after the service. If you have time, uh, I'll be in the back. Just catch me and introduce yourself to me. Um, I'd be honored to meet you. Um, I'm just thrilled with what God is doing in our midst uh, today at this church. And so I don't know if you came today expecting uh, to encounter the living God and for him to speak to you and quite possibly even move in your life. Um, but I just want you to know, like to be in the back of the room and hearing the church cry out, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. What a powerful prayer. When the songs that we sing are not just about God, but to God, our songs are prayers. And we were praying that together this morning. And so I am excited about what God wants to do uh, as he makes his presence known, not just in this room, but in our hearts and in our lives as he opens us up and prepares for us to hear from his word. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts chapter 4, if you're visiting with us, we are going through the book of Acts together. And uh, as we've noted early on in this sermon series, um, the book of Acts was actually a book that didn't have a title. And so historically in the church, it's been referred to as the Acts of the Apostles because the narrative of Acts tracks God moving through the apostles. But we talked about and proposed the idea that, that a better name would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, that the apostles are just uh, supporting characters in the story of the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit is the main character moving and working. We're going to see that again today. Uh, a little background <clears throat> to catch you up to speed. The church has just launched. I mean, it's brand new on the scene. These apostles are figuring this out as the Holy Spirit guides them and gives them opportunity. So Acts 2, the Holy Spirit empowers in a remarkable way. About 3,000 people become Christians uh, in, in just a matter of one sermon. Uh, last week, we moved to chapter 3, and we saw the first recorded miracle of the church where through Peter and John, the Holy Spirit healed a man that had been lame since birth. And then what happened is they were at the temple. Uh, a crowd began to gather around Peter and John. And so Peter proclaims uh, Jesus as the hope uh, for the forgiveness of sins that through true repentance, we can receive forgiveness, that our sins can be blotted out and that we can find refreshing for our souls. And that's the end of chapter three, Peter calling the crowd to repentance. So now in chapter four, what we're going to get is the first recorded account of persecution against the church with Peter and John. So it's the same scene. We haven't left the temple yet. Peter and John are there. They just addressed the crowd. And this is going to lead us into verse one of chapter four. And as they were speaking to the people, so we haven't even taken a break yet. The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So th that description is not just that they came up to them, but this sense of that these religious leaders have now approached Peter and John, uh, quite possibly in sort of an aggressive manner, uh, Peter and John are approached by these religious leaders. Verse two tells us that these religious leaders were greatly annoyed because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and this annoyed the religious leaders. So what Peter and John are doing is not only proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead, but by faith in him, we too can attain a resurrection from the dead. And so they're proclaiming this to the crowd. Religious leaders are, are annoyed. Verse three says, they arrested them 
and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. We're just four chapters into the book of Acts. Acts 2 begins with 120 believers. Acts 2 ends with 3,000. We make it through Acts chapter 3. Now we're starting chapter 4. The church has grown to, right, and arguably hard to count, but 5,000 or so believers. I mean, just, we're two sermons into the church. And, And the religious leaders have caught wind. They've come to the temple. They're annoyed. And so what they've done is they've arrested Peter and John and placed them under custody. And so it's evening time. So these guys are going to have to wait till the next day to find out their fate. Okay, so this is, this is shaping up to be a very similar account to what happened to Jesus. Arrested at night, right? Had to wait till the next day, right, for his fate, what was going to happen. Now, even more specifically, we'll see this in verse 5. So on the next day, so Peter and John had been up potentially all night thinking about this. Peter looking at John, John looking at Peter, what's going to happen? I don't know. Remember what happened to Jesus? Yeah, I remember what happened to Jesus. That could happen to us. You're right, that could happen to us. Are we prepared? Are you prepared, John, to give an account if they ask? Are you prepared to stand for what you believe in? Yeah, Peter, I think I can do that. Are you? Yeah. Praying for one another, encouraging one another, probably a sleepless night, if you could imagine. So the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, verse six is really important. With... Honest, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, those names, two of them should be familiar to you. If you've read through the Gospels, Honest and Caiaphas were the high priests who, uh, who, were, who were the ones who convicted Jesus and handed him over to Pilate. So, Honest was actually a previous high priest. Uh, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And so like in the United States, once you're president, you keep that title. So Honest is the high priest, but he's not the acting high priest. He's the the one with dignity and respect and experience. It was his house that Jesus was first taken to that night. And then from there, Jesus was transported to the house of Caiaphas, the acting high priest. So these two guys are here now with Peter and John. And all who were the high priestly family. Verse 7 says this, when they... Set, when they had set them in, their, in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So what had just happened? Peter and John were at the temple. There was a man who had not walked since he was born. Peter called this man to trust in Jesus, the name of Jesus for healing and told him to rise and walk and he did. The man goes running into the temple, worshiping Jesus, running. The people know this man. It's not a stranger. It wasn't a setup, you know, healing stage thing. They knew this man. They were overwhelmed. They come to Peter and John. They're in front of Peter and John. Peter and John proclaim Jesus. And now the religious leaders have arrested Peter and John. And the next day, they're, they're asking the question, by what power or by what name did this man receive his healing? Now, this isn't a rumor. This man is a real man in their midst, right? Tangible proof of the power of God. We're not not arguing that a miracle has happened. We need to know on what basis the miracle happened. So as you can imagine, this this was quite the defining moment for Peter and John, wasn't it? 
mean, the first time that anybody besides Jesus had been arrested as part of this movement, the same two chief priests who had convicted Jesus and handed him over are now the ones gonna be making a decision about Peter and John. And so this is a big question, isn't it? Now, keep in mind, when Annas and Caiaphas were making their judgments on Jesus, remember where Peter was, right? He was in denial of who Jesus was. He was the one saying, no, I don't know this man. At best, John was following at a distance. This is a defining moment for these guys. And in verse eight, what we're gonna see is how Peter and John respond. Verse eight, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's not quickly rush over this verse of scripture. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, now Peter and John are gonna face a lot of persecution moving forward in their life that they don't even realize at this moment. Uh, Matter of fact, Peter is gonna be martyred. They're gonna attempt to kill John at one point and he doesn't die, so they're gonna exile him to Patmos where God redeems that and, and speaks and reveals Revelation, the last book in your Bible, to John. But at this moment, I mean, this could be it for them, right? This could be it for us. This might be our last stand here on earth before the resurrection for Jesus and how we answer this question. But Peter stood up filled with the Holy Spirit. And for all they didn't know, right? They didn't know how this was gonna go down. They didn't know what awaited them in the future. They did know this, right? Just two chapters back, The Holy Spirit has filled us. The Holy Spirit's supernaturally empowering us to speak in foreign languages. The Holy Spirit is saving people by the thousands. The Holy Spirit is raising a lame man who has put his trust in Jesus. He now walks. By this Holy Spirit, Peter is filled. And he said to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you Well, that's pretty courageous, right? I mean, right? He didn't just answer the question. He was healed by trusting in the name of Jesus. He wants these guys to know, this is the same Jesus that you put to death, Caiaphas. This is the same Jesus you handed over to Pilate and had flogged and beaten and humiliated and spat upon and stripped naked and then killed. That Jesus whom you killed, it's by power in his name that this man walks. And then look at what Peter does. As he has so far in all of his public discourses and sermons, he takes the Old Testament and he points to Jesus. We've already seen him do this twice in the book of Acts. And here he's going to be referring to Psalm 118, verse 22. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the corner stone. Now let me, let me paint a picture for you to kind of help understand what Peter's pulling together for these guys. So in our culture today, unless you are 
um, involved in construction, uh, home building, uh, around masonry work. It's kind of hard to understand the picture that's being painted here by scripture in reference to Jesus. So if you've ever had a home built or been around a home being built and there's masonry work being done, the masonry work goes up and what happens on the ground is all the rejected pieces of stone and rubble begin to collect and it's a mess. When it comes to cleaning up the job site, in my opinion, it's one of the worst things to have to clean up. It's heavy, you get mixed up with mud, you trample it in, right? And so these are all the fragments and pieces that have been rejected, deemed not qualified or worthy to be a part of the structure, okay? So we understand what kind of what's being painted here. Now, it's different in this culture. See, they don't have dump trucks and front end loaders and, right, and, and ways to transport. So rather than in our day and time, you take a load of stone to the project, you dump it out, and then the masons show up and they begin to fumble through the rocks and select the ones that will work, right? The ones that are the right shape, the right size, the ones that can be just, just chiseled away in just the right way to be a part of the structure. Everything else is left there. But it was different in this time. The masons would actually come out to the quarry and do the work out there. And they would go through the rocks and they would chisel them and weigh them and measure them and they would decide what was worthy versus what was not. And so all the, the particles and discarded pieces would stay in a pit there at the quarry, which made the load lighter because you're not hauling unnecessary rock, right? But it also, you didn't have to clean up afterwards. You just brought the good stone to the project. And so this concept of being a stone that the builders rejected was, was a very common idiom in this culture. And it was also a psalm. So way back in the Old Testament, this Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. The stone that was deemed unworthy by the builder to have too much flaw or not to be the, to be the, not the right shape or size or color, right? The stone that was thrown away, discarded into the rubble in the pile, ironically has now become the most important stone in the whole wall, the cornerstone. And so drawing from that imagery, what Peter is saying to these religious leaders, you guys are the builders. And the stone that you rejected, you discarded, you threw in the pit, you deemed not worthy, God has now raised up. And this very rejected stone has become the most important stone in the whole structure, the cornerstone. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I want to point out something here. I really appreciate Peter's tone here, okay? Because I think if we're not careful, we'll, we'll read Peter uh, through a tone of arrogance and almost a little little snooty toward the religious leaders. You're the ones that killed Jesus. This is all your fault. But did you notice the word we there? Just such a subtle little pronoun, isn't it? And what Peter is saying is what? This salvation is something we all need. Yes, you were a part of the rejecting of Jesus. You discarded him. You killed him. You deemed him as unworthy. God raised him up from the dead. And it, the only way you and I can have salvation is by his name, the name of Jesus. Now think about that. You know, Peter's gonna go on in his letters to write about this idea of being the cornerstone, 
the precious, most precious stone of the wall that has been selected from among the rubble and talking about Jesus. I wanna read a few verses from 1 Peter chapter two. So this same Peter who's talking now in a letter he wrote to the church says this in, in 1 Peter chapter two, verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this is what Peter's saying. He's saying in the same way that Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected, thrown away, discarded, trampled, spat upon, abused, you too are stones that have been rejected by the world, but in the hands of the Redeemer, you're now precious. Yeah, in the eyes of the world, you're flawed. In the eyes of the world, you're not good enough. In the eyes of the world, you're fractured, you're broken. You're damaged goods, right? But in the eyes of God, you are precious. I love this imagery. This is the gospel that Peter is preaching to these religious leaders. You're not holy and acceptable because of your high level of morality, because you're pious, because you strictly hold yourself to the rituals, because of your your fancy religious clothing, because you have the whole Old Testament memorized, those things don't make you acceptable. You're just as broken, you're just as discarded, you're just as flawed as everybody else. But that is the beautiful hope we have in Jesus. He's in the business of going to the discarded pit at the quarry and fumbling around through the shrapnel and picking us up and finding us there and redeeming what was deemed as unworthy and calling us precious, lovely. And so Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. Not for me, not for you. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, verse 17 is where we're gonna pick this up. Um, the response of the religious leaders, um, for the most part, is pretty, pretty clear, okay? Uh, pretty obstinate. So in verse 17, uh, they get together, they're talking, what do we do with these guys? If we kill them, they'll become martyrs. If we let them go, they'll keep spreading the gospel. But in order, verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them, Peter and John, to speak no more to anyone in this name. What are they doing? They're trying to stamp out the gospel. They're trying to, to put the church to rest. They're trying to, to dilute and to stall this movement that Jesus started. They don't know what to do. So they threaten Peter and John. If we catch you saying the name of Jesus to anyone, we'll, we'll arrest you again and it will not be pretty. You are not allowed to speak about Jesus. And then look at verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right 
in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You decide whether or not you think it's right who, who we're going to listen to. But, but here's the thing. We're going to listen to God. It's on your shoulders to decide whether that's right or wrong. What's on our shoulders is to speak about what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have trusted, and what we know to be true. We can't not speak about the name of Jesus. It's just not going to happen. We heard you. We heard what you said. But here's our response. We can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Now, that was a pretty bold statement, wasn't it? A pretty courageous move here, right, from two guys who lacked courage before the resurrection. But now, filled with the Holy Spirit, there's something churning inside of them, stirring this sense of courage that wasn't there before. And here, three times in, the, in, the, in, in Acts chapter 4, it's going to be described as boldness. Boldness. Now, what we're going to look at next is uh, they're going to be released, and they're going to go back to the church. And I want us to pay attention to what they do when they get to the church. And then from there, I want you to pay attention to what they say. Okay, so here's what happens, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends. Who are their friends? Remember the 5,000 believers? They're, they're meeting with a group of them. We don't know how many, but a group of those believers... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they weren't hiding this from the church. They let everybody know. Here's what they said to us. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said. I want to pause right there. So if we back up to Acts 2, Peter stands up. He preaches at Pentecost. 3,000 believers are there. They're cut to the heart. They say, what do we do, Peter? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And so about 3,000 were saved that day. The very next verse, verse 42 of Acts 2, says what? They, all these new Christians, were devoted to what? The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and who remembers? The prayers. See, prayer wasn't just a, a filler for this crew. It wasn't just how you got a service started or how you ended a meeting or, or how you got prepared to eat a meal. Like prayer was like their lifeline here. And so these guys have just been released, threatened with their life by the same two religious leaders who convicted Jesus. They share it with the church and now the church is gonna cry out together with one voice in prayer. Let's pay attention to what they pray. Let's, before we do that, let's think for just a minute. What kind of things would we expect them to pray? Dear God, would you change those religious leaders' minds? Dear God, would you change our circumstances and make this easier? Dear God, would you protect us? Dear God, would you give us discernment to help us avoid those who might persecute us? Oh God, would you change our circumstances? Isn't that normally how we pray, church? Right, it's what we would expect them to do. We're in a hard situation, God. We need you to change our situation. But look at where they start as they begin to pray together. Sovereign Lord. That's a powerful title to give to God. You're saying what? God who is in control. In control of what? Our circumstances, our persecution, 
the God who is in control of how this thing goes down. Sovereign God. And then they begin to list list out attributes that, that remind them of how sovereign God is. Look at what they say. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign God over creation, the the one who spoke and it was. Verse 25, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, and by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're referring back to a time where David was being persecuted and how through David's prayer and his lamenting, it was a reflection of where these guys are today. That sovereign God, the one who created, the one who spoke through David, Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do not skip over this lightly. What they're praying together as a church is that not one hair on the head of Jesus was touched that you didn't allow. Sovereign God, not one right ounce of spit that hit the face of Jesus was outside of your sovereign will and plan. All the persecution that Jesus endured, every bit of it. You go back and you read the prophecies about the death of Jesus from hundreds of years before it happened. Read Psalm 53. Everything that happened to Jesus was the unfolding of God's perfect predestined plan. So why does that matter right now for them? They're crying out to the sovereign God who is in complete control over the death of Jesus. Verse 29, here's what they're asking for. Let's, let's, let's pay attention. This is what they're asking God to do. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are being performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We do not intend to let up. You've asked us to proclaim hope that is in the name of Jesus. They told us not to. We can't do the rest of the stuff. We can't make men speak languages that they don't know. We can't make men rise from the dead. We can't cause people who are walking in blindness and darkness to turn to Jesus. We can't do that part. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue to speak the name of Jesus. Oh, God, here's our prayer. Oh, sovereign God, make us bold. Wow. Oh, sovereign God, make us bold. I think it's important for us to think for just a minute about what they mean by the word bold, okay? Because I think there's some interpretations of that in our modern day time that they don't mean. So just practically speaking, this word boldness, when you translate it into English, uh, it means to be free uh, and to be fearlessly confident, okay? Now, but that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. To be fearlessly confident, you could be arrogant, you could be a jerk, Right? You could be judgmental and be fearlessly confident. Or 
You could be meek, humble, gracious, and be fearlessly confident. So if we look a little bit deeper into this word, the word, another way to translate it would be to be cheerfully courageous. I like that, I like that rendering, cheerfully courageous. Not reluctantly courageous. <sighs> Fine, God, you forced our hand. Not, not in bitterness or hesitation, but cheerful courage. Dear God, make us cheerfully courageous. It means to have a freedom in speaking and an unreservedness in your speech. Now think about the flip side of that. What's the opposite, the inverse of that definition? A slavery to fear that, in, that inhibits you from speaking. Does that hit close to home with anybody? A sense of anxiety or fear that inhibits you from speaking about Jesus? I would sense you, like me, probably know very well what that feels like. To be given an opportunity to shrink back in fear, to allow all the things that could go wrong to be an excuse for not being courageous and bold about your hope in Jesus. Now, what we're not talking about is grabbing a bullhorn, a couple of mean poster boards and a few of your homies and going to downtown Fort Worth and yelling at people. That's not, that's not the idea of boldness here. That's not cheerful, right? Yelling at complete strangers who you don't know Telling them that they're going to hell is not a cheerful expression of bold. It's bold, right? But it's not this kind of bold. Cheerful boldness. I love, I love Peter's tone. You guys killed Jesus, but guess what? We all need to be saved by him. All of us. Now, I'm going to share with you what, um, what I believe to be one of the primary obstacles in our day and time in this country that keeps us from being cheerfully bold for Jesus. Um, men in the room, those of you who were here last spring, we went, uh, last year men's ministry, we went through um, series 33 together. And we talked a lot about the idols of our heart, right? Tim Keller talks about how the human heart's just an idol factory. We make up idols that aren't even there and chase after them and pursue them and, and expect them to give us joy and hope and peace and they never do. These are idols, things we worship in place of God. When our men's ministry last year, we talked about three primary idols. I'm going to put you to the test, okay? This is where you get to talk back to me. Let's list them together, shall we? What were the three idols, primary idols, that men struggle with in our day and time? Idol of? What? Comfort? That was one. Idol of? Significance? Yeah, that one hit close to home. Idol of significance. And the all too popular idol of? Control. Yeah. Now we could go on. The list from there just goes on and on idols, right? That we just make up. But those are three things that men struggle with, right? To a certain extent, all of us can relate to those. I'll be honest with you. When we were going through that series, the one I didn't relate to very well was the idol of comfort. I had a hard time practically thinking about how that one played out. I get idol of significance. I got daddy issues, okay? So I've, that one's played out in my life over and over again. I've done stupid, desperate stuff to gain the approval of a person or a girl or a boss, right, to try to earn, to try to feel significant. Um, I love control, men, right? As soon as things start getting a little chaotic in the household, that idol will well up. We want to control things. And so we get angry. We raise our voice. And we try to control things. But the idol of comfort, I had a hard time getting my mind wrapped around. And I've come to realize something, though. 
of all the idols we talked about, I think this might be one of the most widespread plague worships of any idol in our country today. And the reason why I missed it is the same reason why most of us miss it. It's so subtle and it's ingrained and hardwired in the way we think about life. Think about that. From birth, we hardwire into our children comfort, right? I mean, this is how we get them to quit crying (laughs) as the grandma pats a baby on the back. We want our children to be comfortable because when they're uncomfortable, we're uncomfortable, right? Who likes a crying baby? You got that on your playlist, a little Mozart and crying baby? No, why? It makes us uncomfortable. Oh, quit crying. What do I have to do? I'll do anything. I'll run to the store and get you Cheerios. What? Just tell me what you want. Please, how can I make you comfortable, right? Because I don't like being uncomfortable. Adolescence, we continue to reiterate this, comfort, right? Adulthood, comfort. I was talking in the first service, how would it be, can you imagine like next August, if by choice we just decided, let's not turn the AC on just one Sunday. Yeah, what would that do to like attendance, right? Why? Because we're hardwired for comfort. We need, we desire, we even deserve to be comfortable. Don't tread on my rights. I deserve to be comfortable. Don't make me uncomfortable. And we're just, we're just touching the surface of this idol and how it plagues our culture today. Isn't this what keeps so many of us from being bold about Jesus? I don't like being uncomfortable. Talking about Jesus means talking to people who are looking at me. They might talk back. I don't know what to do with that. I'll be uncomfortable. And this idol of comfort, right, becomes such a significant obstacle in being bold about your faith in Jesus. If you're taking notes, let's fill in some blanks together and let's talk about how this works out practically or could work out practically in our lives. The first one is this, living with boldness means taking a stand. These guys took a stand, didn't they? Very humbly, very graciously, but we're not gonna quit talking about Jesus. Took a stand for what they believed in, what they staked their life upon. Taking a stand uh, can look look in a lot of different ways for us. We're in political season right now. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. (laughs) Holy cow. And it's confusing, right? How do you take a stand? Is not voting taking a stand? Is voting for the lesser of two evils taking a stand? Right? If I choose to vote, do I vote on my my stance for character? Well, what do I do? Right? (laughs) So then I'll discard that and I'll go to the political issues, the social issues, things that are near and dear to my heart. Maybe it's life in the womb or marriage or something else. And right? It's hard to know how to take a stand for what you believe in. Let's think about this. Let's just bring it into our own homes and start there. Before we start worrying about running the country and fixing things there, what if we just talked about our own homes? What does it mean to take a stand? Very often I, um, in counseling, can kind of, as I listen to a couple talking, I can kind of begin to hear and discern what the Holy Spirit's doing through convictions and describing what, what's going on here and we need to be better with our finances and we need to be better at this and you kind of begin to start, okay, it's not the Holy Spirit's moving in your marriage. You just aren't on the same page yet, right? I'll tell you one of the great mistakes I see in marriage, men and women, but maybe it happens more with men, is taking a stand in the wrong way, right? 
In the same way, I don't encourage you to take a bullhorn out on the corner of downtown Fort Worth and yell at people. Like taking a stand needs to be a gentle, humble, meek thing that you do, right? You can still stand up like, hey, I think we should you know, be better stewards with our money, right? But without attacking the other person. So taking a stand, we need to understand it's not this idea of being a bully in your house. So taking a stand in your own home, here's some ways that that could play out. Maybe you've decided, or maybe God's led you to the place, God wants us to be, to get out from beneath our financial slavery. Maybe you've determined we're just slaves to too many debtors, we're in debt, we wanna be out of this, okay? That's, you could take a stand there, it'd be a good stand to take. You need to be on the same page, working at it together, right? That could be taking a stand, right? Because why? What's happening all around you? People are going into and justifying debt like crazy. And they're saying to you, you'll never be happy unless you have all these things. And the way you can have all these things is to rack up debt. And so debt's good, right? It's a necessary evil to be comfortable. But you could take a stand against that, couldn't you? We had somebody in our community group talk about, um, last time we met, how occasionally they'll do a spending freeze for a month. Not necessarily because they have to, but just, hey, we're not spending any money this month. We don't have to. We're going to eat whatever's in the pantry in the freezer. We're just going to clean it out and get creative. Like, take a stand. How about busyness? We've been talking about that a lot. It requires taking a stand, doesn't it? To say, no, we're not gonna do this. I, I know that there's one more activity at school. I know that, right? One more practice, one more. It's okay. It's okay to miss a practice. It's okay to get to that place where you're like, you know what? We just really are short on family time right now. Our relationships are getting thin. Let's just, let's go on a spending freeze with our time. Right? You have to take a stand. That's not popular. What are you doing? You're gonna ruin your little kiddos. They're gonna miss practice and you're not gonna ruin your kids. They can actually skip a whole season and they'll be just fine. Amen. But you see how taking a stand, right? We're just talking about some practical ways, busyness, financial slavery, and on and so on and so forth. Let's talk about another way we can live boldly. Uh, living with boldness means taking risks. Taking risks. This is a pretty risky move they just made, wasn't it? They knew very well what they could be facing. Now, what we're not talking about is reckless living, okay? They didn't just go strap on the first century uh, model of the parachute and go jump out of a, off of a cliff, right? I mean, they're taking the right kind of risks. We're not just talking about reckless living. We're saying this, I'm willing to take risks for the sake of Jesus. Can we talk practically about what that looks like? Here's what that could look like for you. Going out to eat with somebody that you don't know. Feel the tension in the room? That's risky. I mean, I don't know. Do we, do we pray or not pray? Are they praying family? Like, we eat? Like, it's just going to be risky. I mean, they start prying into my business, and this is risky what you're asking me to do. What are we going to talk about? It's risky. Going out to eat with somebody. How about this one? For some of you, it's getting involved in a community group. And again, I, I, I hear this a lot in our, in our church. For some reason, women are more prone to take that risk, to get to know people, to be known. Men, we struggle with that one. I hear about that a lot in our church. There's a hesitation oftentimes from the man because we work up in our minds this false idea of what it's going to be like. They're going to ask me to pray and quote scripture, and then I'm going to have to heal somebody. And it's just, I just, I'm not ready for all that pressure, sweetheart. I'll let you know when I'm ready for that pressure. But then here's how the story goes. But then finally he goes, and he's like, oh, that's what y'all do. 
okay, I, I can get in on this, but that's risky, isn't it, men? Right? Because you don't know what's going to be expected of you in that moment, and you're not going to have all your Bible trivia in a row. And It's risky. How about this one? Catching your neighbors outside to talk to them. That's risky. That's risky, isn't it? Just living intentionally. Let's talk about this. What does it look like to live boldly with intentionality? If you're, if you're taking notes, this is the last one, intentionally. Living intentionally. I'll sum it up this way. I love um, this phrase from Dave Ramsey about money. And if you've been in the class, you know every dollar has a, has a name. This is Dave Ramsey's principle. It's a great principle, meaning what? We don't have any unnamed dollars in our budgets because if they're unnamed, what are we going to do with it? We'll spend it trying to get comfortable. Right? So everything has to have a name, has to have a place, has to have a purpose in our budget. What if, we, what if we stewarded our time that way as well? Every minute has a name. I'm not talking about busyness, right? Because rest has a name. But intentionally building into your rhythms, rest and time with the family. And oh, wait a second. I've, I've been wanting to make this relationship with my neighbor. I'm going to put time in my calendar to do that. I was going to mow on Friday, but he always mows on Saturday. So you know what? I'm just going to intentionally put it off to Saturday morning, hoping that I get to run into him. And I don't know, we'll talk about mower blades or something. But I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to cross the lawn, right? The risky move across the St. Augustine. Introduce myself. Say, hi, my name is Jason. And we've been living here for three years. I just, I feel so embarrassed. I haven't come over to introduce myself. Uh, my name's Jason. Nice to meet you. Uh, what do you do? Where do you work? Awesome. You just begin to build that relationship. Look for an opportunity, right, intentionally. So we talk about boldness here. What we're not talking about, again, is, is running out into our culture with a bullhorn and a baseball bat, right, jerks for Jesus. We're talking about <laughs> is living life very intentionally, willing to take the necessary risks, right, in order to what? To be bold, to share with somebody, to get that point in the conversation where you are able to say, you know what? You may not agree with this. You may not even fully understand it. But my hope right now in this election cycle is in Jesus, not in him or her. Or you get to that place in that conversation with your coworker and they're thinking about bailing on the marriage and you say, you know what? I get your frustrations. My marriage isn't perfect either. But I would say this to you, um, the grace of Jesus is what keeps us married. Short of that, I would have bailed, right? It's getting to that point in the conversation, right, where you're able to boldly articulate where your faith is. Take the risks, live intentionally, and take those stands. So here's what I want to do with us today. I want to invite you to participate in this. I want to pray this prayer together as a church. I want to pray this prayer. Sovereign God, make us bold. I'm not gonna ask God to change any of our circumstances. If you wanna pray that, feel free. I think God as a loving father loves to hear what's on your heart. My prayer is gonna be, dear God, make us bold. As our worship team comes back up, if you guys are ready, why don't y'all come on up and, and prepare to lead us. As they come up, I wanna invite you maybe uh, just into a time of reflection. Can we do that first? Um, here's what I would love for us to do, and I'm gonna do this with you. I want us to just maybe close our eyes and just begin to think about um, all the fears, all the obstacles, all the excuses that come up that keep you from being bold for Jesus. 
right now. Maybe you just want to think about your fears. Maybe for you, it's, it's busyness, lack of energy. Whatever your excuses are, let's, let's think about those right now. And here's what I want us to do together as a church. I want us to take all of these things, let's throw them in together and lay them at the feet of the cross. And let's pray this together. Oh, sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth, the God who planned and orchestrated human history in such a way that there's no mistaking that Jesus is your son. And God, we together have come to a place where we have trusted in his name and his name alone. Sovereign Lord, make us bold.